listening to the Film Monsters Podcast with me and Ray. <laughs> well, hello everyone and welcome back to the Film Monsters Podcast. I am Nate. And I remain being Ray. And... Ray and I are very excited because we just finished the science fiction series. We had a lot of fun talking about science fiction movies. And today, we're starting a series that Ray and I are both going to nerd out over. And that is talking about the production company A24. And before we get started with the little topic I wanted to ask you about beforehand, Ray, I kind of just wanted to ask you really quickly, like, what was your introduction to A24? What was one of the earlier films that you watched from them that kind of got you interested? in their movies. I feel like with A24 it was interesting because I honestly feel like I was watching A24 movies without knowing there were A24 movies but I feel like when I finally started to take notice of A24 it would have been like in 2015 with either The Witch or Hereditary. What a hell of a way to start with the production company. <laughs> I mean the, the Witch remains my favorite A24 movie. Having said that though like I feel like The Witch was the first time that I I watched something and I took notice. I was like, I keep seeing this A24 thing pop up everywhere. And honestly, for, for a while there, I thought A24 was more of like some directors have their own companies like Bat Robot or Skydance or Syncope. Like, uh, so at first I thought A24 was something like that. Like, oh, maybe there's this director, kind of like how J.J. Abrams says Bat, Bat Robot. So at first I thought A24 was something like that rather than just a full-blown production company. Yeah, exactly. And my experience is pretty similar to yours. I obviously have talked about on the podcast before that I worked at a movie theater. And in 2013, I saw the movie The Spectacular Now in theaters. But I had no idea what A24 was or anything about them. So I just watched the movie and really enjoyed it. And I don't think that I watched another A24 movie until probably the Noah Baumbach film while we're young or jumping up to the witch like where you were at. So there was a pretty big gap. And I feel like after the witch and then I watched the lobster and green room right around the same time. I think that was when I started to go back and revisit a lot of their films and kind of look into it more. And obviously now there's something where it's like you and I are on the edge of our seats waiting for them to release something new. Have you ever, have you ever seen that meme? Did you see that meme going around? Like, I think it was like last week. It's like the a 24, logo then at the bottom is the rick and morty thing it's like you son of a bitch i'm in yeah that's literally like ever and and i feel like you know it's funny because on my youtube channel right now i'm going back through and watching the entire a24 catalog and what's interesting is really early on in their career they were relatively inconsistent with their financing to where they released some really incredible movies to to going to release some really terrible stuff but i feel like now it's very rare that we get an A24 movie that's really, really bad anymore. It seems like they're a lot more pick and choosy about what they finance, and I'm glad for that. Typically, if I go in there and see something with the A24 logo on it, I'm going to love it. Yeah, see, aren't you glad you saw the masterpiece Bodies, Bodies, Bodies? No, that's an exception. That's. But speaking, <laughs> speaking of uh, masters at work, and I thought this would be a fun way to start the episode. So, Ray, you're familiar. I have to ask you. You're you're familiar with a, a director named Robert Eggers, correct? I would be I would be right in saying that. I think so. Sounds familiar. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. You might you might know he's well well, I don't know if you're aware of this, but he has two younger twin brothers 
named Max and Sam, who he has worked with on The Lighthouse and The Witch. One of them in particular, he worked with on uh, The Lighthouse in developing the script. They found a bunch of old Lighthouse journals and worked on it together. Well, apparently, the two twin brothers next year will be releasing their first film through A24 called The Front Room, and it will be starring the music artist Brandy. And it is about a newly pregnant couple have to take in an estranged stepmother when she is struck by an illness and it is classified as a psychological thriller. Interesting. A lot of uh, talent run through that family, huh? Yeah, what the heck? But, you know, is it going to take place in, like, Victorian era or in 2020? Because that might be a deal breaker for me. So honestly, like from the still images that I've seen so far, and I'm not sure like how many set photos they have and what they've described, I think it's going to be a present day film. But regardless of the fact that it would be a present day film, I feel like if they dive into it similarly to the way Robert Eggers dives into exploring the psyche of his characters, I'm totally fine with that. Like I would, ne- I know a lot of people are kind of back and forth about it, and I love that Robert Eggers sticks to those period pieces, but I would never be like completely like taken off by him saying I'm going to make a movie in modern day because I think he's such an amazing screenwriter and has such incredible attention to detail that it wouldn't really matter to me what time period it takes place in because he knows how to write an immersive story and so I feel like if his brothers are anywhere near that I I would be super I'll be super pumped to see it regardless well and all, all joking aside I'm sure they don't want to paint themselves into a corner because you have a tours like Wes Anderson where now it's all most expected of him to make a certain kind of movie so i feel like he's painted himself into a little bit of a corner so i'm sure that a lot of these directors probably don't want to paint themselves into a corner like that where they're expected to do a film in a certain vein and i think what's interesting though is like you were saying about people painting themselves into a corner it was really interesting to see the reaction of a lot of a24 fans when ari aster released the details about disappointment boulevard and how it was going to dive more into like uh comedy and some of it uh amidst the suspense and i feel like there were little threads of comedy in midsommar uh and even a little bit in hereditary not as much so and a lot of A24 people were like, no, you've got to stick to doing the same thing. And it's like a lot of filmmakers want to challenge themselves and they want to do something different. And sticking to the same thing over and over again is going to get boring after a while. Yeah, for sure. You you want to have a, a variety. Because when you because that's the problem. When you start expecting certain directors, certain companies to do the same thing, you're never going to be satisfied because A, you're going to get bored of the same thing or B, you're not going to want them to venture into something new. I couldn't agree with you more. And speaking of something different, that leads into our topic for today's episode. So everybody knows A24. Everybody knows The Witch. They know The Lighthouse. They know Midsommar. They know Hereditary. We all know the big name movies that have been released through the production company. And so Ray and I wanted to use the first episode of our A24 series by telling, giving you some maybe underrated gems from A24 that not a lot of people talk about. I, I Ray and I actually did a live stream on his Instagram a while back where we were talking about this same topic, and we just thought it would be fun to come back on the podcast and explore this in a little bit more depth since we have the format and the time to do it. So on that note, though, do, do you know what, where the A24 came from? I do not. I actually pulled it up earlier today and I was going to share it. So I guess the name A24 was inspired by the A24 motorway in Italy. 
Interesting. I guess the the founder was driving down the A24 motorway in Italy and decided that's why he wanted to name his company. So it's a complete. It's a reference to the A24 motorway in Italy. That is really cool. I had no idea that that's what that was. That's super interesting. And now you've got kids and young adults alike all over the United States of America with it tattooed all over their bodies. I've seen so many A24 tattoos in this Facebook group I'm in of A24 fans. And it's there's a huge dedication to this company. People are like in love with it. And I understand as someone who just went to film school and understands like the challenge of getting a movie made, I feel like for the most part that a24 is really good about taking some risk on filmmakers and giving them the creative control to make what they want i feel like aside from this article that was released recently about ari aster cutting down disappointment boulevard from three hours it doesn't seem like they're really big into interfering with a director's vision listen all i'm saying is if i'm gonna get an a24 tattoo is gonna be the googly eye tattoo oh yes i would love to see that actually that that would be a good that's a good choice of a tattoo to pick. You just pick one of the A twenty four logos. And I'm just like I'll get the googly eye one. That's see that one that would be wonderful and that would t- that would take people by surprise. So Ray and I have each chosen five films that we're going to talk about, and I'm pretty sure you started last week, sir. So if you'd like, I can start this week. By all means. All right. So this the, my first film today. I actually just watched a couple weeks ago for the first time. And this was something that, to be completely honest, I had no interest in watching whatsoever because I didn't know about the subject matter. And it ended up becoming one of my favorite documentaries I've ever watched, which A24 has not put out a lot of documentaries, but they've put out a few. And the one I'm going to talk about is the 2015 documentary, Amy, about the life of Amy Winehouse. I feel like... For this document, I ha- I've never seen it, but I I do feel like when I finally discovered what A24 was and I went back to look at their back catalog, that one kept popping up a lot. I never saw it, but I do know that this one's supposed to be really, really good. Yeah, so I honestly, like with the exception of like songs I'd heard in passing had never really listened to any of Amy Winehouse's music and was really unfamiliar with her life in general. And so I'm doing this series for my YouTube channel where I'm watching every single A24 film. And I came across this one and I was like, well, I'm going to dive into it just like I would any other movie. And it is one of the most compelling and horrifying documentaries I've ever watched. I mean, this might as well, I saw a lot of people on Letterboxd say it, but it might as well be a horror movie. Because, so you're introduced to Amy at a very very young age and she she has this incredible talent as a vocalist she's very soulful she sounds almost like a jazz vocalist from an entirely different time and like her huge influences are like tony bennett you you're introduced to her really young and you see like she's just this vibrant super excited young kid early on there's a record producer who hears her music and immediately wants her to go record And she decides to go record some songs and she goes on a small tour and she just blows up like nothing else. It's like essentially like, you know, we see a lot of artists we love, Ray, that are like sort of middle of the road, like even bands like you love Thrice, I love Manchester Orchestra. They're decent sized bands. They play to decent sized crowds, but I'm talking about going from playing like a basement show in someone's house to playing like Madison Square Garden. It's how quick she blew up in the span of like a few months. And so she released her first album called Frank, 
And when she was going on tour, she was just so excited because she was making the music that she wanted and she was getting to do the things that she wanted to do. And then the fame struck and this movie really takes its time on the cinematography and the sound design focusing on the assault from paparazzi and like the camera shutter noise is still like stuck in my head from this movie at how visceral it is and she was just a kid who wanted to live her life and she ends up meeting this guy who they start dating and to cope with her her anxiety and depression he ends up getting her addicted to heroin and cocaine and all these drugs and she was binge drinking all the time and it, it's just really horrible and you watch kind of her trying to juggle this fame which she only ever released two records in her lifetime and the record label was constantly pushing her to put out more music and she, it, she's like I want to take the time to make the music I want to make I don't just want to push out record after record and not care about it anymore and this ended up driving her to have an unfortunate death early on. I believe she was like 26 or 27. And she ended up dying of alcohol overdose by being four times over the legal limit. But you see like her parent, her dad wasn't supportive. Her boyfriend ended up going to jail, getting out of jail and getting her hooked on stuff again. She struggled with bulimia. And it's just really like this picture of fame is not everything that it's cracked up to be. And that... It, you know, there's this really, like, heartbreaking quote in the movie where her best friend, like, is talking to her about her fame and success and talks about how beautiful beautiful her voice is. She says, if I could go ask to have it all taken away so I could just walk down the street again and be a normal person, I'd do it in a heartbeat. And it shook me. Like, I, honestly, I broke down crying because I was just like, this is a person that just wanted to live their life and just wanted to be a human being. But there is this really beautiful scene where she gets to record a duet with Tony Bennett, who is her all-time idol. And he literally tells her that she just has the most beautiful voice. And she's so shy and nervous, and she keeps, like, screwing it up. And this was in the peak of her career when she was, like, at her most successful. And so it's a lot of really beautiful moments like that mixed in with a lot of really harrowing moments that are super depressing. And I've gone back through and revisited her discography since I finished watching the film. And her lyrics just explore so much of this trauma that she experienced throughout her entire career and I just thought it was a really eye-opening documentary and as someone who loves music and cares so deeply about the music industry it was something that like really opened my eyes to the negative side of it and I think Ray even if you're unfamiliar with Amy Winehouse I think you would still really enjoy watching this documentary. Well I think there's something to be said about stories like that I mean um, I've mentioned earlier podcast that I, I read this book called Sellout where they talk about the, the music industry um, taking these young bands that are hopeful and trying to make it and trying to turn them into these cogs in the machine and how it affects them and how a lot of them turn to drugs and alcohol, how a lot of them turn to different uh, substance abuse. And, you know, I know that as music fans, we are always the quickest ones to be judge, jury and executioners when we see a famous people mess up or not live up to our standards. But it is really eye opening when you see what's happening behind the scenes and how these people you know, I'm, I'm not familiar with Amy Winehouse, but I feel like artists like her or a lot of these like more mainstream pop artists get pegged down as like, oh, you're just like a dumb person that you have a ghostwriter and you're just a spoiled brat when in reality they really are dealing with a lot of trauma and pressure. I don't think a 22, 
you know, 23 year old should ice to stardom overnight, that has to be a complete, just a thing that destroys them mentally. And to and for her to be able to say that she would give it all up just to be able to walk down the street like a normal person kind of makes you appreciate more the fact that we can. Yes, exactly. I, and it was heartbreaking to see. And one of the things I wanted to bring up quickly, because I know it's something we can both relate to. I was listening to a podcast with uh, Dave Elkins, who was the lead vocalist of the band May. And he was talking about when he was with... Uh, tooth and nail records for the Everglow and when they went to put out Singularity that they were put on I think it was like Universal Records or one of the larger record labels and he said when we were Capital yeah it was Capital and he said when when uh, they were with Tooth and Nail Tooth and Nail gave them like 20 to 30 grand to make the Everglow and said take as long as you need make the record that you want and Dave said when they went with Capital they gave them like $100,000 or something to make Singularity and said, you better have it ready in two weeks. And he said it was the most stress that he's ever been as a musician and that he literally was falling apart because he didn't feel like that he could put out the record that he wanted to. And that's the same thing in this documentary, listening to Amy Winehouse say, well, I put out my album Back to Black and it was so incredibly successful. And like a month to two months later, Universal is telling me I've got to put out another record and I've got to make something now. And it's like they're pushing down her throat to get something out. And she's like, I need to take the time to write these songs and write things that are personal that I care about. And it's like, I cannot imagine, especially being a young artist at that age, having that level of pressure where you feel like if you slip up or you do one wrong thing, that your career could be over. And it was really interesting to see the pressure from her dad. Her mom seemed to be a little bit more understanding of like, hey, she's got to get her health in check. But her dad was like, she's committed to this she needs to do it and I think he was really part of the reason that she ended up spiraling so I just think it was a really fascinating documentary it was so well put together and it was just really eye-opening to think like they showed clips from like David Letterman and Leno when Amy Winehouse got put back put into rehab the first time and they were just like openly making fun of her on TV and I think when people get to a point where they don't understand that celebrities are human beings that like that they're people they're they're people who are going through the same shit as us we put them on a pedestal because of their success but it's like that also contributes to people's mental decline and so that was a difficult thing to see as well but it was a really fascinating documentary and i'm really glad i watched it awesome that actually sounds really fascinating i'm gonna have to check it out just regardless of of what films we we continue to talk about like i'm gonna have to move that one to the top of the list because that sounds fascinating it sounds heartbreaking but it sounds fascinating Oh, it broke my heart. It was it, it was so good, though, and I was like, this is one that I think Ray would really appreciate, and I wanted to tell you about it. So now I am ready to hear your first pick, sir. So for this list was really funny because you know how it is. You want to talk about like 17,000 different movies, but you have to narrow it to five. The, my first pick, though, is going to be probably the most recent one on my list. Um, I feel like this film was super underrated. I don't think it even came to theaters here in, in Utah. So I kind of really had to like seek it out. I had to go out of my way to seek out this movie. And I was surprised that it didn't even get a shout out from any awards. The one I'm talking about, and we fan, we I fanboy about this person all the time, Joaquin Phoenix. Um, and I'm talking about the movie Come On, Come On. That was my second favorite movie of 2021, and I completely agree with you. Mike Mills is actually one of my favorite filmmakers, and it was one of the most beautiful movies I've ever seen. I absolutely loved it. That film was so beautiful, and but it, but it was also so um, not only meditative but and introspective, but also very subdued. Like 
this is a drama and it's a, like a high caliber drama, but it's not a loud drama. It's not like there's a bunch of tears and a bunch of really over the top performances. It's very subdued. And of course, there's that one scene when he's screaming with the kid at the end. You know what scene I'm talking about that just broke me. But at the same time, this movie really did take its time for you to learn to care about the, the characters and learn to care about what they're going through and the experiences. And I was so frustrated because this is a movie I wanted to include on my end of the year list that year, but it just never came close to me for some odd reason. Yeah. I, and one of the things backing up to what you just said, and I don't think a lot of people are aware, but Mike Mills got his start as a documentary filmmaker. And I feel like that's why his movies always feel so incredibly personal and that they're that it's what you said they're dramas but they're not loud dramas they're very much refined in a way that like there were times when i was watching this movie that i forgot that i was watching a movie like joaquin phoenix is such an incredible actor because he always blends into whatever role he is but i really want to shout out the young kid woody norman who is like an incredible child actor and just really gives it as everything in this movie to where their relationship truly feels real. It feels like their family. And even Joaquin Phoenix's uh, sister, played by Gabby Hoffman, like, like their relationship feels so great. And I feel like all of the tension and the drama build up in this movie feels like something that could very much happen to anyone in real life. Oh, absolutely. Plus, there's this... Well, like you, you mentioned, there's a good chemistry between all of the characters, which is what makes it feel less like a movie and more like a documentary. Because if you if you would have told me that really is Joaquin Phoenix's nephew, I would have believed you. What I loved about it is, is there's almost like this a strange relationship at first, and they're trying to build that. And that makes the kids slowly open up more and more to Joaquin's character to the point where you have that final scene at the end that you know it just hit me like a ton of bricks when because it's one of those movies that there's no like magical ending where everything is happy at the end like you're left with this sense of like openness like there's so much ahead and i just have to decide where to go from here and it's something that i love when movies do because i feel like a lot of movies try to neatly wrap things into a nice little box for you to leave feeling happy but with that one i left feeling more introspective like okay i i like i learned something i took something away from this film what am i gonna do with it exactly it's just it's life i mean and that's what i love about mike mills in general is that it, it is life it's his movies are so much about just like the everyday struggles that people go through and i, I wanted to say that i feel like that that adds on to his choice in this movie because i feel like a lot of times there's filmmakers who use it to just create like a niche aesthetic but i really love that this film is in black and white i think it really adds something to the movie it gives it almost like a timeless feel but it also kind of grounds it in the reality of like it strips away any of like the vibrant colorful nature of the world and just kind of puts you in with these characters to where the joy that you have to pull from it is specifically going to come from the actors and not from the environment that's surrounded by it and that really adds to the movie for me as well and I love the incorporation of like the title cards with the different passages that are read throughout the film I thought that added so much more to it and it really just feels like a culmination of things 
in Mike Mills's life that uh, he put into this movie. And it's just absolutely beautiful. I, I was so upset at the end of the year that more people didn't talk about this movie because it's absolutely brilliant in every way. I also love the inclusion of those like the little snippets of the interviews they're doing with with not actors. Those are real interviews that they're performing. And I think it adds such a charming personality to the movie to have those little clips of like all these interviews they're doing with with the kids because those are not rehearsed answers. They're that's really how these children feel. And to add that feeling of actual children that they're not acting and then blend that with the relationship that he's building with his nephew, it just adds so much charm to the film. And I agree. I, I was upset that I didn't even get to see this movie until the year, the following year, because it just didn't come near me at all. Yeah, I didn't get to see it until it was released on VOD. And I actually recently picked up the Blu-ray on Amazon because they had it on discount for like $8 and I was really surprised. Uh, but the movie is just absolutely gorgeous. Uh, it's, it's really just this quiet, refined character study. But I think Joaquin's character grows throughout the film to where, you know, a, a lot of times when you're an adult and you're around a kid, you feel like all oh, kids are just these dumb people that don't understand anything and they're too young and Joaquin's nephew really helps him grow in this movie he he helps him change into a different person and it was just beautiful and eye-opening to see that and then to watch this young kid who's going through such a difficult situation where his mom has to go take care of his dad because his dad is literally losing his mind. Like, it, it, it's just, that adds another layer onto it where it's like, this feels like a real family dynamic. And I, I'm so glad you brought this movie up, right? Because I think it is so beautiful and it's just one of the best movies I've ever seen. Just the last thing I want to add before we, we move on from, the, from Come On, Come On is there's also something really cool to be said. Because I feel like we live in, in a society that even though it's 2022 and we're supposed to be more open-minded and more liberated, there's still certain like tropes that people feel like they need to, you know, check off their little box. And I feel like a lot of people feel like, oh, having children is one of those things. But in this movie, Joaquin Phoenix, he is single. He has no kids. The connection that he does is through his nephew. So I think that goes to show too. It's a nice little like subtle commentary on the fact that you you can be moved by children that aren't necessarily yours. You don't have to you don't have to feel the pressure of I need to go have my own kids in order to feel these emotional moving moments. It can come through someone just someone that's close to you. And I feel like a lot of people, you know, I, I've met a lot of people that they feel like there's some form of failures or they need to feel like they have to walk up to a certain standard because they need to do X, Y, and Z, one of them being having children. But this movie obviously isn't advocating for you having children. It's just making you realize that you can have, you as a grown man could have an emotional, impactful experience with a child that isn't even necessarily your own. And I think that's important to talk about too. 100%. I think that's a great point. I could honestly just rave about this movie with you for an entire episode. I feel like there's so much you can dive into and pick apart and it is just incredible. But let's not do that because we still have four more each to go. So give me your next one. So uh, riding high off the Mike Mills train, my next recommendation is another Mike Mills movie from A24 called 20th Century Woman. Oh, hey, I've heard good things about this one. In fact, when I was, I actually, when I was doing research for this episode, I, 
you know, I usually like to look up to see, kind of get my finger on the pulse, see what the zeitgeist is trying to tell me. And a lot of people were saying that this one is one of the more underrated films in the A24 catalog as well. I'm going to tell you right now, Ray, with how much you love Come On, Come On, this will be an instant favorite for you. It is just absolutely incredible. It's very much similar to Come On, Come On in the vein of that it's this very quiet and refined character study. So I'll give you a brief little rundown, but the story takes place in 1979 and you have this young 15 year old boy named Jamie who lives at home and they live in this like old boarding house with his mom and his mom's played by Annette Benning. She does an absolutely incredible job and they have a bunch of tenants who live in the house and there is a young girl who's 24 years old, Abby, played by Greta Gerwig, and she's being treated for cervical cancer. And then they live with this older guy, his name's William, who's a carpenter who he's helping to get the house brought back up. And then his best friend is a 17-year-old girl who lives across the street, played by Elle Fanning, who she spends the night with him all the time, but they never have sex. They just, like, they sleep together and she's close to him. And the movie is about all of the relationship dynamics between these characters. And on the surface, the biggest thing is the relationship between his mother and her son. And it's absolutely beautiful. And you have the son spends a lot of time with Greta Gerwig's character, who's this photographer. She's very much a documentary-style photographer where she takes photographs of objects and she's trying to say something larger with those objects. And then you have, obviously, you have this young 15-year-old boy who's spending time with a 17-year-old girl who he's completely fawning after. And her character has kind of, like, not the greatest home life from the outside. Um, she's constantly hooking up with these other guys. And he kind of is put on the back burner as, like, the friend-zoned friend. But she sees him as this, like, very much, like, younger, sort of juvenile type of person. And she never kind of crosses that line. And then you have the, uh, the Carpenter character, Will. William, who lives at the house, who starts to show interest in um, Greta Gerwig's character. And so you have all these different dynamics, and really it's just a story about growing up, and it's about finding your place. And what I think is really impressive about this movie is a lot of times, if you're going to do a film that's about like this 15-year-old boy, everything is through the lens of the boy. Like, this is obviously a male director, but what's interesting is how it jumps through different perspectives where it's like you get a lot from Greta Gerwig's character, you get a lot from Annette Benning's character. You're, so you're jumped all over the place to where you really get a deeper understanding of all of these people. And it's just a really beautiful story about humanity. And I watched this and I was just like, my God, I don't know how this movie didn't blow up because I know Mike Mills also did the film Beginners with Ewan McGregor. And I feel like that movie was really well received. I think it got nominated for a couple of Academy Awards, if I remember correctly. But this movie, when it was released, really there wasn't much said about it at all. And similar to what I said about Come On, Come On, I feel like this is a perfect movie. There is not one thing about this film that I can say negatively. It's so well put together. It is so beautiful. And um, the third act of this film just really pulls at your heartstrings, similarly to what you said about the end of Come On, Come On, that this film just really kind of like destroys you but builds you up at the same time. And Mike Mills, when he was making this movie, um, said that he was raised most of his life by his mom and his sisters. And so... He wanted to make a movie about the importance of women in his life and how powerful women are and what they did for him 
growing up and how important women are in our society. And he said there's a lot of the movie that's like semi-autobiographical. Certain elements of the characters kind of bleed into his real family. And I think that that's, that really kind of shows Mike Mills' tie-in to documentary filmmaking is like he's pulling so many elements from his own life and putting them into this but the movie is beautiful i could rave about it for forever and it's one ray that i 100 percent want you to watch because i think it is fantastic mike mills i feel like now after you talking about this one and you know come on come on now i feel like i need to just dive deep into his catalog it sounds like he only has three feature films. Uh, the rest of his early work is documentary, so you really just have to watch 20th Century Woman and Beginners. Oh, well, there you go then. Make it e- make it easy on you. But yeah, the, the movie's great. It also dives a little bit into the punk rock scene at the time, which is another element of the movie that I really, really enjoy. So yeah, 20th Century Woman. I bet you didn't think that Ray and I were going to hit you guys with a back-to-back Mike Mills recommendation. I am ready for your next pick, though. Hit me with it. Um, so we're, I'm, I'm going to depart from the from the subdued dramas and into a film that I absolutely adore and everyone absolutely hated it. And I blame A24 for the just horrendous, horrendous. They just did the worst job of promoting this movie. And you know where I'm going with this. And because I'm talking about It Comes at Night. They did a horrible job marketing this movie. I feel like everyone that saw the trailer thought it was going to be something else. But I, am, I of course, being someone who is really into art house, surreal, horror that's like more slow paced. I saw this in the theater and I left and I was like, fuck yeah, that's exactly what I wanted. And everybody else in the theater was like, fuck this movie. <laughs> yeah. But okay, no, so so I, I my agree. reaction to that story, to my reaction to your story is there was other people in your theater? Yeah, honestly, the so I saw this opening weekend. Uh, my wife and I saw the trailer for it, and we were both like, yes. And my wife and I both really like the uh, actor Christopher Abbott that's in the movie. And so we were like, yeah, we want to go see it because we really like him and we love A24. So we really want to jump on board this train and watch this movie. And we both really liked it. And every, our theater was really packed. And we heard so many people leave going, what the hell was that? That was so stupid. Nothing comes at night. And I feel like that was the big thing that people said about the movie. But I I really enjoyed it. I think that it's a super great, atmospheric, and really intense drama. Yeah, well, that's what it ultimately is. Um, it's a drama. It, it's a suspenseful yeah. drama. Um, and what comes in that is it's the paranoia. Like, that's kind of what I got out of it. It's like... All these events happen at night. Um, the, the most paranoid moments of the movie and intense, intense movie moments happen at night. So something does come at night, and but it's not like a physical manifestation. But at the same time, yeah, they did a horrible job. But like, they literally show all the dream sequences on the trailers, which was awful because they were just dream sequences. I don't know if you take if you took notice of this though. The the aspect ratio changes throughout the movie a lot. Yes, it was one of the things I really appreciated about it because when it switched over for the dream sequences, I felt like it really helped to immerse you into the story even more, and I was really appreciative of that element of it. I was really thrown off though by the fact that the aspect ratio changed for a third time for the ending. So was the ending all a dream or was it all reality? Because the aspect ratio was different 
from reality and for the dream sequences. It was a different aspect ratio for the final, uh, for the final like 15 minutes of the of the film. And what's crazy about you saying that too is the director of this film, Trey Edward Schultz, who has actually done all three of his films with uh, A24, has really kind of juggled uh, genres really heavily. Uh, his first film, Krisha, is like a really intimate family drama. Then you have this movie, and then you have Waves, which is like a very uh, interesting character study about these young adults. But he does the same thing in those movies as well. He'll do things where he juggles different aspect ratios. He always does something really interesting and unique with his cinematography. And this movie, I think... It bleeds atmosphere. It just, like the whole movie sucks you in from the first frame to where I like that it's this dystopian world that it's not like, oh, we're seeing all this news footage of people destroying grocery stores and stuff. It's like you're just in this house with these characters. And like when this other family comes into play, all you know is that there is this threat that could possibly make them all sick. And that just adds to that tension and keeping you confined to this one space, knowing like, where am I going to go? Cause this is happening everywhere. Or is it really happening everywhere? We don't know. Like the paranoia created in this movie is just phenomenal. I also thought it was so eerie that what is the dog barking at? That was the only thing that I was like actually disturbed. I'm like, what is the dog barking at? What? you know, what kills the dog as well. But there is the sense of paranoia because you don't know. And that creates, it's almost like a, like this built tension between both of the families living in the same house. They don't know, like they, they don't trust each other. It is just a game of paranoia. And then you have this, this kid in the middle of the whole thing that he just wants to go back to normal. And that's just not going to be the case anymore. But there's something about this movie that's so deeply deeply misunderstood and it just really boils down to how it was promoted it was promoted as this like gritty horror movie when i would argue it's not even a horror movie at all no there are horrifying elements to it i think that that's one thing i typically tend to disagree with the general populace about what is horror because there's a lot of people who say like this isn't horror there's people that say hereditary isn't a horror movie and i'm someone who has been through a lot of real life horrifying experiences and I think real life can be horror. It doesn't have to be a ghost. It doesn't have to be something supernatural. Like, real life can be horrifying. Like, when I watch a movie about the Holocaust, that is a horror movie. To me, that is horror. Like, horror is anything that you're watching that is genuinely, like, terrifying you to your core, unsettling you, and making you uncomfortable. And so I think this is a horror movie, just possibly not by the general definition that society has placed on horror. It is a movie that shook me to my core. I just don't think it's your stereotypical jump scare, oh my god, something's coming around every corner. It's more just an existential dread and like what's going to happen next. And I've heard a lot of podcasts talk about this movie over the years now that have gone and revisited it after its theatrical release that people seem to love this movie a lot more now than they did when it first came out. It's really interesting you mentioned that too because I was just watching a, an episode of History of Horror and they're talking about the movie Contagion and one of the one of the filmmakers says Contagion is a horror movie. They're trying to say that it's like this like psychological drama. It's like no, it's it's a horror movie. There's nothing more horrifying than a pandemic that could destroy 
the world in a matter you know of months if we don't know how to handle it and it's like and having gone through covid you know all these dystopian movies where there's some form of illness floating around you know a lot of people try to pan that as like a, it's a psychological thriller or something but like, that's horrifying the fact that there is a threat that we can't even see but could kill us at any moment I agree with you. I think this movie is really a misunderstood masterpiece. I think it's a really great film, and I'm actually uh, looking forward to when I'm watching these films for my YouTube channel to come back around and rewatch this one because I think it's phenomenal. Yeah, I love, I love it. Comes at night, and I know you had seen it because we had, I had hinted at this in the past, but I would be remiss if I didn't plead the case for it comes at night again. And for those that saw it and thought it was just a dumb movie because they were expecting one thing. Now that you know what the movie is about, like go watch it again with like an open mind because it really is trying to say something really, really powerful. I think that is awesome. And it was a great recommendation. I'm glad you put it on your list because uh, it's one I thought about putting on my list, but it ended up getting edged off by a couple other movies. So I'm glad that that one ended up on your list. All right, so what is your next one, though? So my next pick is a movie that I feel like was incredibly misunderstood and that didn't... It got a minimal release in the theaters, but it wasn't out for a super long time, and that is the 2018 British horror comedy In Fabric. I haven't even heard of In Fabric. In Fabric is a... Dario Argento-esque giallo film in a way. Uh, it's very similar in the shot design and the structure and the cinematography. And it's really about a haunted red dress that kills its owners. And it's really fantastic. So you have a couple of different plot arcs. You have our lead character, Sheila, who is a bank teller who lives with her son and she's divorced. And she gets chastised by people at her work and they treat her really bad. She has this close friend that she talks to quite a bit and she ends up buying this dress and she brings it she brings it home and she starts breaking out into this rash and when she tries to wash it it destroys her washing machine and literally like the movie just kind of goes off the rails after that to where all these things happen to where there's like the people who own the shop it's like implied that they're these weird like cultists and there's like the, they go up into their store at the end of the night and, like, there's this one scene where they have this, like, mannequin who looks almost lifelike. And it's, like, menstruating. And some guy is, like, jerking off in the corner while it menstruates. Like, it's a super wild movie that it really feels kind of in tune to those 1980s giallo films. And then the dress ends up coming into possession of multiple people throughout the film. And the timeline kind of jumps around. And what this movie is on the surface is just a really great kind of horror comedy that leaves you on the edge of your seat but it's also an enormous shot at the at consumerism in general and how people you know view others by the way that they dress and by the types of clothing that they get and this feels like one of those movies that's really timeless like you watch it and you're like wow this movie could have came out in any era and i would believe 
that it was like a 1980s film or whatever. It's just, and it's so incredibly vibrant. One of the problems that I have with a lot of films now, and I think I've said this on the podcast before, a lot of films are really muted. I feel like cinema, like you go to a theater and even like Marvel films, it's like nothing is like super heavily saturated and beautifully and like really vivid colors. Everything is incredibly muted and it's always bugged me like for some reason. And this movie has incredibly vivid and bright colors and just beautiful uh, cinematography. And this film also has an incredible score by a group called Cavern of Antimatter that really kind of feels like uh, something from a different era. And I absolutely love it that they released it on vinyl. I think it was a super limited release. I'm not even sure if you can pick it up anymore, but it's a really great score that accompanies just a really great movie. And yeah, this is one that really kind of bummed me out that more people didn't talk about it when it was released because I just thought that it was absolutely amazing and it was hilarious and it just kind of kept me wanting more. And even by the time the movie ended, it ends on a really great note. It's super intense. Uh, and I was like, I just want more movies that take place in this world. I want directors that take risks and try to make stuff like this because I feel like a lot of complaints with modern horror is that the horror films don't feel like movies of, you know, the older quote unquote prime era of horror films. And this feels like something out of a different time. So if you're into horror or horror comedies in fabric is 100% for you. It's pulled it up. And yeah, I, I, I don't recognize any of it. I haven't even seen a poster or anything. I definitely, this was completely off my radar. I had never heard of this one. Yeah, it is an absolutely wild movie. Uh, it's really, it's hard to explain it in super grave detail because you'd give away a lot of what makes the movie so great. It's just one to dive into and it has a lot of incredibly deadpan humor in it that uh, will make you uncomfortable, which I think the best movies do that. So that's my recommendation for In Fabric. So are you telling me this is the British version of Slacks? Yes, absolutely. I love Slacks, by the way. Don't talk shit about Slacks. No, <laughs> no. I haven't seen that. It's on my no. watch list. I haven't seen that. I just it, no. What's premise. interesting is it. They're two vastly different movies. But what's interesting that you mentioned Slacks is Slacks on the surface is like a. You think it's just like a stupid B comedy, but it actually ends up saying something much larger than that. And yeah, it's a brilliant film. Both of them are brilliant. I love them both. Uh, but yeah, watch In Fabric. Ray, I think you'd love it. All right. Well, for my next pick, I'm sticking with horror still. This one was, it's really interesting to me because no one talks about it. It has big, like, it has good reviews from critics. It has awful reviews from from just like your your regular moviegoers, which kind of blows my mind because I feel like this is one of A24's most accessible movies. Um, and this is one that I've mentioned before called The Monster. I, this is one on your list that I have never seen. I still have never watched it. I'm actually, it's funny that you mentioned The Monster because I'm getting really close to it for my A24 series. Uh, I think I'm like maybe four or five movies out from it. So I'll be excited to hear you talk about it. Well, the, the thing about this movie is that I'm not going to sit here and tell you this is like some art house it's actually a really straightforward film of this mom and daughter. Uh, obviously, there's more to it than just what's on the surface. But basically, this mother and daughter have a really rocky relationship. It just It's not a good relationship. It's a very toxic, very 
you know, very abusive relationship. You, you can tell that the mom has substance abuse issues. The daughter is kind of the one that has to be the responsible one a lot of the times. And one night, the daughter is going to go stay with her dad. And there's this illusion basically in the movie that the mom thinks that the daughter is not going to want to come back from her from staying with her dad so they get on this in the car and leave and as they're driving in the middle of the woods there's a wolf that comes out in the middle of the road and in order for they try to avoid hitting the wolf but ultimately um aren't able to and then they hit the wolf but then they lose control of the car and then the car breaks down in the middle of this dark road and it's just downpouring and there's a monster in the woods that's trying to you know kill him that sounds super fascinating, and su- I like the idea of it being uh, that small of a scale of like these people trapped in the middle of the woods, and like I say, small scale. You're still in this enormous wood, but like if you have this monster who is chasing after you, it's not like you have the free reign to go wherever you want be- in fear that you're going to get caught. Well, and then the interesting thing is it's like um, what I really like about it is that as they're being haunted by this monster, there's flashbacks of this really toxic and abusive relationship between the mom and the daughter, which to me, um, that was almost like there was this comparison of the monster being something more uh, metaphorical to the substance abuse issue um, from the mother and then this like psychological abuse from the mother to the child. So to me, it was almost making a commentary on like we are haunted by literal monsters in our life every day, whether it be substance abuse, whether it be domestic abuse, whether it would be our own self-worth, mental illness, whatever you want to attach to it. Because the mom, the, the movie opens up with a quote that says, my mother told me that monsters don't exist, but she lied. So then there's this whole thing of like, there's this real life monster hunting these two girls but these two girls are very damaged and they have a very damaged and toxic relationship. So for me personally, it was kind of doing this comparison of like a real, real manifestation of a monster hunting down these two girls who are in fact being plagued by, by, you know, real life monsters of their own. And something I really appreciate about this movie too, I know this might be cheesy to some people, but maybe you might be able to appreciate this. The monster in itself is not a CGI monster. It's like a guy in a rubber suit. So the monster can look a little, you know, goofy at times, but I actually thought it was charming. Uh, well, as you know, if you've listened to the podcast, and Ray, you know me very well, uh, I am a very big advocate for practical effects. I love practical effects. I I want my movies to be more practical. So yes, I 100% would be down to see a man in a rubber suit being the monster compared to some goofy looking uh, CGI that, especially a movie like this, which I'm assuming has a super low budget. Um, Yeah, the budget for this film, I just pulled it up on wikipedia it had a three million dollar budget and it only made 75 grand in the box office which is unfortunate because from the way that you uh have made it sound it sounds like something i would really love uh this was a this was one of those films where i feel like it's been hit or miss visiting in a24's catalog that they co-produced it with direct tv 
Um, there's a couple movies from them. Like I watched the film Slow West recently, which was really great, and that was co-produced by Directv. But then they put out one like uh, Barely Lethal, which with Haley Steinfeld, that was like a fucking Disney Channel original movie, and it was horrible. So I wonder if that was part of it. If it was like it didn't get a really long theatrical release and DirecTV's like we'll just push it online because people can watch it there right well i'm not gonna sit here and tell you like this movie is a masterpiece no it, it's it's a great horror movie um a great monster creature like feature but um but i mean it's not of the same caliber as like the witch or hereditary or everything everywhere all at once it's not at that same level but for what it is and for what the message that I got out of it, I thought it was great. And it kind of surprises me that more people didn't like it because I feel like it's one of their more accessible films. Like there is a metaphor behind the monster in my opinion, but you could watch this movie just as a monster film and that be perfectly enjoyable. So this is a movie that I feel like is completely and totally underappreciated. It ended up doing okay in the box office. It made like double its budget, but I feel like, I never hear anyone in the A24 fan base talk about this movie and it really disappoints me because it is an actual masterpiece and the film I'm going to recommend is from director Joe Talbot in his directorial debut and the film I'm going to be talking about is The Last Black Man in San Francisco. Oh, I have heard so much good stuff about this movie. I haven't seen it, but I've heard tons of great stuff about this one. It is probably one of the most unique films that A24's released, similar to that vein of everything everywhere all at once, where it really just kind of does whatever the hell it wants, and it does it in such an amazing way. So I'll give you the story simply, because it's it's very complex. Uh, it's about this young guy named Jimmy, who lives in San Francisco, and he lives with his best friend Mont, and they live with Danny Glover, who is his grandfather who is blind and they live in this small house that's kind of in the slummier area um there's always it's like really campy the way that they do it but in the best way there's always this group of like six guys that stand on the corner of their street that are always bickering and fighting with each other and it's kind of like the symbolism of the area they live in and when they go into downtown uh san francisco it's really like predominantly becoming this white area gentrification is happening everywhere where you see these lower income housing areas that are being destroyed and knocked down to be built up with these giant like housing developments. So Jimmy says that his his ancestors built this beautiful Victorian house in the Fillmore district of San Francisco that he grew up in. And he goes to this house and these two wealthy white people own it. And every day he goes there and he like paints the outside of it or he like takes care of the flowers outside. And the wife is always yelling at him like, this isn't your house. What the hell are you doing? And he's like, my great, great, great grandfather built this house. And the reason why this house is here is because of him and you're letting it fall apart. You're not doing anything to take care of it. And so what ends up happening is something happens with a family. They end up getting having to leave the house and it's caught up in this thing with these different um, real estate companies where it's kind of sitting in limbo to where no one owns it. So Jimmy and Mont break in and they start living there. And the movie is he tries to he tries to take it over as his own house and he tries to convince the bank to sell him this house that he he believes that his family has owned. And it's this beautiful story. Like it really is just 
it, it's heartbreaking because you see this person who cares so deeply for something who for all intents and purposes is never going to be able to have it because you think about the housing market in San Francisco. It That's going to be like a million dollar home. It's a beautiful Victorian house in downtown San Francisco. So it, it's like you're watching him do this and then at the same time you have these really interesting commentaries on like toxic masculinity where our two lead characters are these very quiet and refined guys who are super intellectual they're very well read and then you have the dichotomy of that which are the guys that stand on the corner that live near their house that are constantly like fighting each other calling each other names doing all that kind of stuff and whenever they approach them Mont especially who is one of my favorite characters in the movie always gives them this really like nuanced and quiet and intellectual comeback for whatever kind of like push that they have that's more violent and so you have that on the surface and then you look at Jimmy's character who we find out that his dad doesn't really talk to him he lives in this kind of shitty apartment selling bootleg dvds and he's really just kind of a shitty dad and then like his mom he never talks to and there's this beautiful scene where he's on the bus and his mom's literally just on the bus with him and it's just a really beautiful character study and on top of that there's this amazing cinematography where there's these like slowed down sequences that look almost like moving paintings there's like super hilarious moments in it that are just kind of laden throughout the film and the third act of this movie is such a gut punch in the best way possible that as soon as the credits rolled I could not stop thinking about this movie I, I think about it all the time I think it is a masterpiece in every way there's there's so many movies I watch that I feel like as someone who appreciates film I go back in my head and think like I'd change this about this movie or I'd change this about this movie there is not one single thing in this film that I would change from start to finish it is a masterpiece it is one of the best movies I've ever scene and Ray I really want you to see this it is so good looks like this is his only film too yep mm -hmm. it's his only movie and I'm hoping that I thought I saw something recently that he's in the works with A24 to work on his next film and I'm hopeful that that's the case because this is just such a unique movie I really there's just nothing else I can say other than it's so unique and like one of the things I think you and I both tout for a24 is we want that uniqueness we want that individuality that you know doesn't always come in films and it's just a brilliant movie and I love it and I really could talk about it for a year go watch last black man in San Francisco you will love it go ahead with your next pick. Well, this is one that we've talked about, so we probably won't spend a lot of time on this one because you and I have both talked about it on and off the podcast a lot. Um, and you know this one. It's 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 Locke. Dude, okay. So I just want to say before we get into this is that, Ray, I, you know every time we do these podcasts, I really appreciate your recommendations. And what I loved about when I watched Locke, because I watched it for this A24 series that I'm doing, I, I went into it remembering all of the things that you said about the movie, and it made me appreciate it even more. And, like, honestly, what I give this filmmaker credit for so much is that he somehow managed to make this very simplistic premise of a guy driving in a car for an hour and 25 minutes so visually stunning and really just, like... You know, sometimes you find yourself getting bored 
like in movies, if especially if it's in the same space. Like I remember this um, Ryan Reynolds movie called Buried that he was buried alive. That even with like the suspenseful premise, I found myself getting pulled out of it. I never stopped being completely immersed in this movie. Every frame, I was like, "Holy shit!" And I think that's part in part to how compelling of an actor that Tom Hardy is. Also, what a range he has, because I feel like Tom Hardy now gets almost typecasted as, like, buff dude that always wears a mask and you can never understand what he says. Yeah, I, one of my favorite scenes is when he's talking to that guy about doing the pour, and he's, like, blitzed off of hard ciders, and he goes, here's what you're going to do. You're going to go, you're going to leave, you're going to run. There's going to be a man outside of the bar. He, he knows me. Give him my name. And I was like, dude, every, every line I was like, dude, Tom Hardy, like you are, you are committed. And what was really impressive to me about this movie and talking about it more with you make grows my appreciation for it even more is that like you, he's so subdued and calm and collected about the decisions that he's making. Like he knows that he needs to do this thing because of like the experience he had with his dad and like he knows what he has to do. But what is so impressive is he never breaks in the phone calls. It's always when he hangs up and his facial expressions in this. Oh my God. Dude is such an incredible actor. I love that scene. And this scene was heartbreaking, but it just goes to to tell you about his range when when um, the lady that he got pregnant is like, do you love me? He's like, how can I love you? I barely know you. And he's just so like matter of fact about it. Played by the great Olivia Coleman. We also we also have we also have a a, a young Spider Man in this movie. Oh, uh, I love when he's like, "Where is your mother? Is she still in the bathroom? Can you get her to pick up the phone?" <laughs> that's my that's my best attempt at the Tom Hardy lock impression. I tried. <laughs> well, what what was so impressive to me about this movie, and this is something I actually really appreciated, that he gets in the car and it's like, "I'll be there," and you know in about 90 minutes and that's literally how long the movie lasts you're with him the whole 90 minute drive just want to keep saying like the cinematography in this movie the way that they are able to keep this so interesting i love the conversations that he has with his dad where his dad's obviously either dead or just not in the picture anymore that he like looks through the rear view mirror and like pictures in his head that his dad is sitting in the back seat i loved those scenes i thought they were so well done because it's like that shit people do in the car by themselves. Like, all people are all weird. They all do things. They talk to themselves. Like, I talk to myself all the time. Like, shit happens. But I thought that that was so interesting, like, when he was talking to his dad in the backseat of the car and being like, look, dad, I'm not doing the same thing you did. Like, I'm, I'm doing the right thing. I know this is the right thing. And, like, knowing that he's juggling his family, his, his professional career, and everything about his life that it could all just end horribly so that he can go take care of this baby that he feels like it's his responsibility to to take care of i just thought it was brilliant i also love that you know they could have easily done the the cheesy thing and at like an actor sitting in the back that isn't really there but no he really is just talking and then they show the back seat and it's empty so it's like you almost you're put in that situation where he really is talking to himself because there's nothing back there. But, you know, I feel like if this was like a mainstream movie, they would have gotten like some Robert De Niro to sit in the back seat to pretend like he's the dad. And this one's like, no, he really is 
by himself. And I like that because it makes, it puts you more in that, in, in a real situation, you know, if I have a random conversation like that, I'm not picturing, you know, there's not some like, you know, some freaking Jeffrey Rush type sitting in my, the backseat of my car. It really is nobody. I love how this movie creates suspense out of like the most simple things. Like when the guy who's at the work calls him and tells him like that the permits haven't gone through for the one street. And he's like calling all these different phone numbers to try to get the permit to make sure that the street gets blocked off. And he, he bugs the one guy at dinner and he's like so pissed off at him. And I was like, God, I even being like in the restaurant industry and in like event planning for a while, like I've been in those situations where it's like, call this person and this person and this person to try to get something done. And it's like Tom Hardy essentially knows that his job is going to be gone. Like even if it goes well, but he has so much pride in what he does. And he's got this like almost God complex about wanting this building to go up. He's like, it's my building, my building. <laughs> I should, they should refilm the American version of Locke and cast me as Tom Hardy. <laughs> you don't, you don't want them to cast like um, Adam Sandler? No, I want it to be me. Also, I didn't even realize it was an A24 movie until like way later. I really enjoyed this movie a lot. It's good. So, my number one pick. You talked earlier about It Comes at Night getting screwed over by A24. In my opinion, this movie got screwed over more than any other movie that A24 has ever put out. It got pushed back like a year, I'm pretty sure, when it was released. They set a date for it to be released in 2018. Then they ended up pushing it back to 2019. It barely got a theatrical release for like a week. And then they ended up putting it straight to VOD. This movie is one of my favorite films A24 has ever released. And I am talking about none other than Under the Silver Lake from David Robert Mitchell. I feel like I need to have some like some special effect here. Maybe you could edit it in of me like reactantly shocked that you picked this movie even though I'm not shocked at all and I was fully anticipating it. <laughs> I knew that you knew I was going to pick this movie but like here's why I love it. So I, ha, you have seen It Follows, correct? Yeah, and I know it's the same girl from It Follows. What, so David Robert Mitchell, the director of, of It Follows, this is his follow-up this follow-up it, it followed it followed yeah. it followed it follows uh and so, so this movie takes an entirely different direction than that where it follows is a straightforward horror film that has a pretty large commentary about you know sexually transmitted diseases and there, there's like it's a very female-centric movie. I feel like both of his movies are really looking into, you know, the issues that women go through. And Under the Silver Lake is no exception. So this film on the surface is about Andrew Garfield's character, who he's this kid living in Silver Lake in L.A. And he is fascinated in conspiracy theories. And he's, like, broke. He can barely pay all of his bills off. And he ends up meeting this girl, played by Riley Keough, who they end up hooking up one night. And she leaves... And he goes to her apartment and her apartment is completely moved out of. There's no one in there. The house is completely empty and she's gone. And he ends up becoming obsessed with her. And he starts trying to investigate all of the different things that are going on with her disappearance. And so he's looking into people surrounding her life. He ends up figuring out about this this band who is related to her, who he thinks may have something to do with 
the the um, disappearance of her to where he's like going to their shows to try to meet up with them. They're the band, by the way, Ray is called Jesus and the Brides of Dracula. <laughs> And I think A24 or one of these companies actually ended up releasing like a seven inch with one of their songs on it. So the movie is him kind of going around and investigating this while at the same time, there's this supposed killer on the loose. It's like paralleled to that. There's this crazy like creature that is introduced at one point to the movie. There's all of these different ideas that are conveyed. And what the film what the film community complained about with this movie is that they said there was too much going on and that there were t there were too many different things and while i will say there are a lot of themes that are occurring in this movie the biggest theme of this film is how hollywood treats women there's so much in this movie about like women going out for casting calls there's this organization that's introduced that's literally like actresses who can't get enough work who essentially become prostitutes just to make enough money to pay their bills and there's such a comment on how sleazy the hollywood world is on how it treats women and andrew garfield's character is kind of a slimy dude like he he's likable but he's also kind of a douchebag and so when you watch the movie it's interesting to see that dichotomy with his character where there's a lot of times that he feels like a copy and paste copy of the hollywood machine and there's this brilliant scene about this person who is supposedly the one who came up with most of the modern songs that we've heard in our lives and david robert mitchell is someone who seems to be really in tune with that hollywood machine and wanting to critique it and part of me wonders if that's why this movie was so shoved under the rug because of how much of a fuck you it is to hollywood as a whole and it's just really brilliant the movie that i would compare this to the most is David Lynch's Mulholland Drive. There's a lot of very reminiscent things in this movie to that. I don't want to get much more into it because this is a movie that you just honestly have to experience. It's it's a little over a two-hour runtime, and it's like every second you will be on the edge of your seat. There will be moments you say, what the fuck? There will be moments that make you laugh. There will be moments that will disturb you. But it is like, for how long of a runtime it is, I know, Ray, when you were talking about Blade Runner 2049, you said you saw it in the theater and you literally went the next day to watch it. I watched Under the Silver Lake on VOD, woke up the next morning and watched it two more times back to back. Because I was just so enamored with the filmmaking and with everything about it. And it is amazing. I, I honestly cannot say enough good things about it. It also is scored by Disasterpiece, who also scored Follows and scored the uh, critically acclaimed A24 masterpiece Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. <laughs> And he's, he scored Marcel the Shell. Yes, which is also an incredible score. Uh, but yeah, the, the Under the Silver Lake score, I have a vinyl copy of that. It is beautiful. It sounds amazing. And this movie is a misunderstood masterpiece. And you can come at me all you want, uh, internet world. But I love this movie with my whole heart. I will defend it to the grave. Uh, and Ray, this is a movie that I'm going to have a really hard time picking what movie I want you to watch. Because there's a lot on this list I want you to see. Are we going to have like a... Uh, a sunshine episode all over again where you're like it's a misunderstood masterpiece i'm like i have issues that it could be it very well could be but i will i will defend this movie you, you know uh completely to my death because i love it so much you will you will break up this podcast yeah, same way movie. i feel about last black man in san francisco i will defend that movie to my death this movie once again horribly horribly promoted film um it 
didn't really make it to Utah either. It was one of those movies I had to wait till it was out on Blu-ray to be able to watch. Um, I think it, from the get-go, it turned people off because it's a foreign film. And the one that I'm going to be talking about is the Icelandic film, Lamb. I fucking love Lamb with everything in me. Yes, Lamb is underrated. And also... My thing is, people unnecessarily hated on this movie, and I don't know why, because to me it's like in the same vein of like a Midsommar or like a Hereditary where it's this really refined character study with some of the most breathtaking cinematography I've seen in a movie in a long time. I mean, you point a camera in any direction in Iceland and it's breathtaking no but even that like opening shot where they have the camera kind of slowly creeping in to where it's that tiny doorway that you see all the sheep through like that shot was brilliant i mean even something that simple just looks so amazing also i love that there's like zero dialogue for like the first 20 minutes it's just all about atmosphere and i love movies that are all about atmosphere you know as as a and, you know, maybe I'll save this comment for later, but I did resonate with it. I did resonate with, I feel like the message it was trying to convey was resonated with me a lot. And obviously, like, I feel like, again, a lot of people thought this was going to be some, like, creature horror movie. And in the way it is, but it's not what you're thinking it's going to be, if that makes sense. No, I felt like, and, and if I'm correct, I, I, you know, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I do feel like this movie was saying a lot about how society mistreats animals. I think that that's definitely like a big reoccurring theme throughout that's really easy to pick apart. But I also think that this film plays heavily into the idea of like post-traumatic stress disorder after trying to have a child. And like, clearly it's never said out loud, but through visual implications, uh, Numi Rapace and her husband, you can tell that like they have that graveyard in their backyard that you see. And it's implied that they've tried to have kids and it could have been multiple times that they tried to add kids that they couldn't, which makes the relationship with, uh, the cutest character in a 24s history next to Marcel, the shell, uh, a- Ava, who is lit, is it Eva? A- I can't remember the the lamb's name. I already forgot. I, it's been a while since I've watched it. Do you remember what the lamb's name is? Not off the top of my head, but I have it pulled up. I'm gonna look. I'm I'm looking it up right now because it's gonna piss. It's Ada. Ava was the name of the robot in Ex Machina, which I just remembered. Ada is the name of the 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 sheep child hybrid uh cute cutest thing ever did you see the a24 gave away one of them to a fan and i was like why wasn't it me i love this movie and yeah i do i do agree with you i think it is thing it's a big commentary on the way how we mistreat animals and you know the trauma of of childbirth but i also feel like this movie is also like, it's so good at visual storytelling. Like, there is some dialogue, and I know a lot of people are like, oh, we have to read subtitles. Poor me. But it's like, grow up. Read subtitles like an adult. Um, But at the same time, I do feel like it's saying so much just through visuals. You know, that whole that whole side arc going on with, like, her, you know, his brother coming and staying with them for a few days and everything that transpires from that. There is so much being told just through through visuals one of the scenes that it was so heartbreaking to me it just was like so heartbreaking and it happens pretty early on in the movie is when the the mother sheep keeps 
you know, coming over to their house looking for for the little for the little sheep and like it starts driving the mother mad you know so there's this whole sense of like two mothers you know the animal mother and the human mother just kind of butting heads a lot and just what transpires about that but then also what transpires in the end because of those actions and it's this movie I wasn't sure what to expect because as we as I mentioned before, seeing movies where animals get hurt, it can be kind of hard for me to watch, but I couldn't look away from this one. Oh, I know. It's it's so difficult. And I think what's hard about that scene that you're talking about in particular where the mother lamb keeps coming back for her child, what's so hard about that is even when that horrible scene happens, I couldn't be completely upset about it because I put myself in... Numi Rapace's situation where like if you've tried to have kids for that long and you can't it doesn't happen and you see this as like a miracle almost uh it's it would be so difficult for you and I understand like where that would put your head and your psyche and she's sort of losing her mind because she feels like this thing that she's been blessed with is going to be taken away from her and that that was a really hard scene and I think also what's super interesting and I want to talk about with you a little bit because I don't feel like it gets dived into enough is I think this whole thing with the introduction of uh her husband's brother and the implied relationship between the two of them, I found like that was really interesting. Yeah, for sure. Um, I don't want to get too into the plot of this movie because early on, before we got on the podcast, I've told you there's a movie on my list that I felt like nobody watched and I desperately want to talk about in great length. And that was this one. Oh, I am a hundred percent down with talking about this movie in grave detail. Cause I think it is amazing. So, um, I might as well just just throw the spoiler out there. Um, next episode, we are going to be talking about Lamb in much greater detail. I am I am torn, and I am going to do something that I have never done on the podcast before, guys. This is a first, Sir Ray. Here, I am going to put the pressure on you right now. Do you want to watch the Last Black Man in San Francisco or Under the Silver Lake? I am leaving this up to you. Because I'm having a hard time picking. I want you to see them both so badly. But I'm going to let you pick. <sighs> you, you you put me in the bind here, sir. So what we're going to do is we're going to leave people on the edge of their seats. And next week, I guess I'll be announcing what the next episode is going to be on as well. I love that idea, actually. That's going to leave people in, uh, as the Rocky Horror Picture Show put it, Antissa... Patient. <laughs> so that was Ray and I's 10 underrated A24 picks. Ray, as always, sir, what wonderful uh, suggestions you've given to me and to our audience that I have. I think I've seen, I think I saw everyone on your list except for the monster. So I will be very much looking forward to watching the monster and very much looking forward to watching Lamb again this week to get pumped up for next week's episode. And I was like, I wanted to do the monster because I knew you hadn't seen it. But The Lamb is one of those movies that no one has seen for some reason. I have yet to meet someone that was like really involved with this movie. So I just been wanting to talk about it in grave detail. And because we can do whatever the hell we want with this podcast. I want to talk about Lamb. 
Yes, just like when it comes to A24, all I've wanted to talk about this week is the new movie that got cast with Phoebe Bridgers as one of the leads. Of course you do. I'm going to be the most annoying person for the next year <laughs> until that movie comes out. Uh, also, Fred Durst is in it. <laughs> so, so Nathan, I want to try something real quick. Don't think about it too hard. Just answer on impulse. What is an A24 movie you haven't seen that you want to check out as soon as possible? An A24 movie that I have not seen that I want to check out as soon as possible. Well, obviously, well, the short answer that's not, that is on our list would have been The Monster because I've never seen it. But I will say that, you know, there's movies that people talk about all the time on this A24 group that I'm in that they're always like, oh my God, I need to see this. But you know what's one that I missed in the theater that I really want to watch is Lean on Pete. About the the fifteen the fifteen year old kid that works with the racehorses it had Steve Buscemi in it and uh, I am if you cannot tell I am a sucker for like character dramas and the movie looked like it had beautiful cinematography and amazing performances so that would be my my first answer would be Lean on Pete I it's been on my list and I'm excited to get to that period where I watch it I'll ask you the same question sir what would that be that's not on our list so I am a sucker um, and I'm sure you can probably relate because you're such a fanboy of Under the Silver Lake. I am a sucker when I see a movie that's so divisive that sometimes both the rotten score and the audience score is low. It piques my interest when I see that. On that note, the one that I want to see as soon as possible, and I already found it on HBO Max, so I'll probably be checking it out at some point this next week, is um, how to talk to girls at parties. Yeah, that's uh, that's one that I feel like is incredibly like low reviewed. Uh, but there are some people out there who really enjoyed it. I feel like that's similar to the uh, the Kirsten Dunst movie that was released, Woodchuck, that from A twenty four. That a lot of people it, it didn't get great reviews, but there's a lot of people who really love it and think that it's just like super misunderstood. Uh, so yeah, I, I think that's a good pick. I, that's one of the things about doing this and I know it's really hard with your life and how busy you are to do it, but like, it's been really fascinating to watch all of these A24 films from, you know, the oldest to the most current because I'm watching a lot of things that I may not have jumped to watch because I have that schedule with YouTube and it, it kind of puts these movies in there, which is really cool. Like, uh, my next movie on my list to watch is the end of the tour, which is the movie with, uh, Jason Siegel. Um, about David Foster Wallace, which I've always wanted to see it. That one's high on my list. That probably would have been my second or third pick um, for movies I want to watch from A24. Yeah, it's always been on my list. And the thing is, it's directed by uh, James Ponsolt, who directed The Spectacular Now, which I also think is an incredibly underrated A24 movie, one of my favorite coming-of-age films. So I'm really looking forward to watching that. Uh, yeah, uh, A24 just puts out some good shit. I, I mean, what what more is there to say? Yep. So, on that note, before we go, what did you watch this week that you wanted to talk about? Watched Orphan First Kill. And uh, let me tell you, that movie was a blast. That is literally a movie that it's been that long since the original was released. It was so much fun. It was campy. It was like an incredible homage to like 80s horror films. And I loved every second of it. It was just so stupid and over the top and fun that if you have a Paramount Plus subscription, I should definitely watch it. It is phenomenal. It's hilarious. It's really just one of the most fun times I've had watching a movie all year. How about you, sir? For me, it's um, a movie you recommended. 
uh, on Shutter called Glorious. Yeah, so I'm actually very interested as to what you thought because I had some problems with it, but I still enjoyed it. Yeah, I obviously wasn't a perfect movie. You're not going to be seeing that on my top ten, but but it was fun. It was a good time. Very Lovecraftian um, horror. I, I really enjoyed that. Um, J.K. Simmons was awesome. He was hilarious. Uh, I, the standout. I do. My favorite part was when he when he's about to use the glory hole and he's like, you really think your penis is going to save the entire human? <laughs> oh, I know. Honest, honestly, my one of my biggest qualms with that movie was when the guy came in and I was like, it, it gives away what happens on the poster. Like, that that whole scene where, like, the guy who was taking care of the, the rest stop area came in there. It's like, and oh, I was like, that's well, what I already, Yeah, I was like, oh, I already know what's going to happen. But I will say one of the creative scenes, especially being on that small of a budget, was when he climbed into the vent and then came out the other side still in the bathroom. I thought that was a really cool scene. And I thought the... Uh, the Lovecraftian-esque effects were pretty decent for the budget. Uh, I thought uh, Gott was an interesting character to explore. I, I thought it was I thought it was a good time. I'm not going to tell you it was like, oh, a masterpiece and go watch it now. But if you have a Shutter subscription, like, sure, throw it on. It was a good time. Yeah, it was definitely, definitely fun. One of their uh, more entertaining movies that I've seen recently. But hold on, hold on. Hold on. You were going to talk about time crimes real quick. I want to hear your really quick thoughts on that. Yes, yes. So I watched Time Crimes, and I really enjoyed it. Ray hyped that up, and it was really great. I thought that it was amazing what they were able to accomplish on the budget, and I thought that the way that it looked at the um, the repercussions of the actions of what you do when you travel in time was really fascinating, and I thought the uh, the guy who played Hector, the lead performer, was fantastic. He, I, I was immediately immersed in the world. Even the director, Nacho, who played the scientist, was fantastic. It was just really great. There were some campy moments, and I felt like the... Uh, Towards the third act, there was a couple of things I was like, I'd tighten this up a little bit, but I still enjoyed the runtime of the film and thought it was a lot of fun. And I'm glad you recommended it, Ray, because it it was it was definitely wild. Yeah, especially like, you know, when he's running away and I'm like, it's only been 20 minutes. Really, where is this movie going? Exactly, it was insane. I was like, as soon as he's like, climb in here and I'll follow you after. I was like, where the hell is this movie gonna go? And it went directions I never would have guessed, which I was really glad about. That is the episode. Uh, Ray and I talked about those underrated A24 films, gave you a couple recommendations here as to what we were watching. So, as always, if you'd like to give us a follow over at the Film Monsters Podcast on Instagram, Ray uh, recently ran a poll about our creatures and what ended up winning, Ray. It was the almighty Xenomorph. No shocker there. The, the Xenomorph. Everybody loves those alien films. And can we blame them? Because uh, the Xenomorphs are awesome. H.R. Giger and all as lunacy. I will say it was kind of weird to see how far the Shimmer made it. I didn't think people cared about the Shimmer at all. No, that's awesome, though. I love seeing those little underrated uh, those little underrated gems sneaking up, uh, sneaking up from behind to try to take the crown. So, yeah, we do a lot of stuff like that over at the Instagram, so give us a follow. Uh, let us know what you've been enjoying hearing us talk about, because looking at the numbers, uh, the Criterion episode is a big favorite amongst our viewers out there. So if there's anything you want, obviously we're going into the month of October after this A24 series, so we're going to be doing all things spooky all the time. You 
can also follow Ray over at Analog C and myself at My Exit Unfair over on Instagram. We enjoy hearing from you, chit-chatting it up, and it's a lot of fun. And next week, as we've said, we're going to be talking about the film Lamb in great detail. So if you've not seen it, go watch it before the episode and follow along with us so you know what the hell we're talking about. And as always, we thank you so much for listening, and we look forward to talking to you next week. And I have no witty movie quotes because I'm not feeling great. Sorry. (laughs) Goodbye, everyone. (laughs) 